got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. This is the first ever episode of What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And we're starting things off on a hopeful note with our first ever guest, Garrett Reppenhagen, Executive Director of Veterans for Peace. I see a lot of people realizing the fissures in our systems and our institutions are are becoming more and more apparent and the gaps and faults in them are becoming obvious. And the, the level of corruption to cover those cracks and make them disappear is, is becoming apparent and they're not settling for it anymore. So I think we're going to really see a new era of protest. We just need to support the troops, is what they tell me. Well, this is coming from a troop, so listen carefully. What we need are teachers who understand the history of this country. What we need is a decent living wage so people ain't cold and hungry. What we need are bicycle trails across this beautiful nation. What we need are trees and less PlayStation. What we need is a justice system that seeks the truth. What we need are more books. Less boots. That was the dearly missed Jacob George and his song Support the Troops. Today we're talking with Garrett Reppenhagen, former Army sniper, longtime rager against the machine, and current executive director of Veterans for Peace. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Let's dig right in. Our goal is to talk about all of the intersectional issues that we have going on that's making this world a more difficult place. So today we wanted to talk with you about anti-militarism and uh, the ways that it can uh, uh, intersect and and converge with specifically anti-racist work, um, but all the other uh, movements that we have growing and building around the country and world. How do how do you feel like this work around anti-militarism is connected with all of the issues that we see going on today? And yeah, that's a lot of questions. So I'll just stop. With that. <laughs> I mean, c- certainly, uh, you know, militarism impacts all of those. And I think everything's interconnected in a lot of different ways. You know, I think uh, a continuation of uh, colonialism and imperialism um, kind of manifests in, you know, in war and militarism. Militarism is often a a tool uh, for all those things. And, you know, it's they're just 
additional pillars, I think, that support, you know, our, our current systems. If you if you look at it this way, every institution of just about every nation in the world um, supports their economic systems and those structures. And I don't I think our military is is just one of those. And, you know, it's built on this idea of exploitation and oppression that kind of bleeds into all these other other issues. So since probably World War II, we haven't really fought a war that didn't involve killing a person of color and fighting it in the communities of people of color. And often they're uh, these kind of uh, unconventional asymmetric battlefields where the United States or most Western powers are this dominant, overwhelming force. And, you know, so there's there's inherent racism there. And I think there's there's also racism in the fact that the massive amount of military and war budget that we have rarely benefits people of color in our own country. And it robs resources that we could put towards public safety nets and public rights that would lessen the economic divide that causes a lot of these issues. So if if we had affordable health care and universal health care, free health care for all, if we had housing for everybody as a human right, if we had education as a human right, we would see a little bit more balance and you know a lot of this hate is is driven by fear and a lot of that fear is over a fear of lack of resources and it's it's this false perception i think a lot of people have that have privilege that there is this challenge of resources and it's a reality for people who don't have them if you wanted to connect uh you know climate racism capitalism you know all these things it's they're, they're really all, it's, it's hard to see any sort of uh, real boundary lines when you really start inspecting them. You know, militarism is, is just one thing that exasperates all of those problems and makes them worse. And, uh, you know, we see over 50% of our tax money going to the, the U S military in, uh, a guise of, of needs for defense to fight boogeymen around the world. And, uh, all that money goes away from taxpayers and into the pockets of individuals and builds the wealth and the centralization of power of 1%. And they don't give a shit about not not only poor white people, but they certainly don't give a fuck about, uh, you know, poor black people. So, you know, and every chance they get, they're going to try to de develop policies and uh, reasons that we're, we're going to fight each other versus actually organize together and fight the people who are, who are creating these problems. Just kind of um, dovetailing off that a little bit. So one reason I was kind of interested in working with Emily is I have a radically different background than her. I am a civilian background, but also was involved in the anti-war movement around the time she um, she, possibly you, were serving in Iraq. Um, I'm kind of curious, from your perspective, what do you think is important for civilians who you know, are interested in piecework to know, and what can they do to get involved with piecework? And what does piecework mean? That's kind of a triple-barreled question, but we can break it down more. Yeah, those are great questions. I suppose they, they mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. You know, my, my want to develop a more peaceful society is really driven by my moral injury of war. You know, having been the perpetrator of violence and have been used as a tool of militarism uh, and allowing myself to do that gives me a amount of, of shame and grief that has kind of awoken me, I suppose, uh, to, to wanting to find a better path. 
and I can't say that I'm a pacifist, but every every day when I wake up, I'm a pacifist, and I try really hard to follow that path. And sometimes I fail, and I I wake up the next day. You know, days like this when you see, uh, you know, George Floyd's, you know, just being abused and and killed and murdered by cops, it makes it really challenging to be a person of peace. Thankfully, I'm still in a position of privilege, probably because I'm I'm white and that I survived my service, that I'm put in a position where I don't have to live under the oppression every day of, of police uh, bothering me and, you know, threatening me, that I can choose a path of peace usually and I can do it with a, with a clear head. But, uh, you know, it certainly is challenging and doing peace work really means uh, trying to find the discipline within myself and, and using what privilege I have to try to flex and change the laws and policies to, to pave a better path uh, for everybody else. You know, trying to stop war globally is such an almost insurmountable uh, goal. It seems impossible, but you learn to organize to break it down in, in little pieces and to chip away and make dents where you can and hope that one day we can reach a critical mass of folks who who want that change so desperately without coming to massive tragedy and atrocity in this country that that drives us to that change that hopefully we can through education and awakening get to that point on that one hand a pessimist and, and a cynic thinking that it's going to take this amount of human tragedy and unbearable suffering before we wake up and demand change but i'm still so hopeful because i do have a five-year-old child and you know i do i do owe it to the world to to work towards that end to hopefully we can develop that awakening before we we we're really in a hurtful situation a lot of people who are in the uh, in various aspects of movement building around environmentalism or healthcare or economic justice or racial justice who don't necessarily get involved in anti-war work they're not necessarily aware that there are anti-war veterans who do the work that you do and that I do and many others who speak out there's this sort of monolith image of veterans as peddled in this country as as I think most of us are have, have been made aware. <laughs> We've been inundated with this image of a, a veteran as a hero and usually it's a white male and usually it's, um, you know, they would never say anything to oppose the commander in chief. And so when people hear about anti-war veterans, it's kind of like a, it's almost like a, they think it's an oxymoron or something. So could you talk a little bit about how you went from the military to speaking out against war? Well, I started speaking out against war while I was still in the military. When I deployed to Iraq, I started an anti-war blog uh, that evolved from a punk rock band named The Bouncing Souls, started a, a webpage based off some of my emails. And, uh, you know, it's it basically evolved into somebody, one of, one of my buddies, uh, suggesting that we start a blog you know, we called the blog uh, Fight to Survive. The original name was Fuck the System. We kept the initials and just changed it to Fight to Survive. And we were all under kind of an anonymous uh, pen names while we were in Iraq writing it. And uh, when Iraq Veterans Against the War formed, 
in the summer of 2004 while I was in Iraq. People who were reading my blog suggested I contact them and shared their information. And I reached out. I said, I'm a sniper in Iraq and with the U.S. Army and I'm against the war. Can I join your organization? And they said, yeah. So I was the first active duty member of Iraq Veterans Against the War, now called About Face, Veterans Against War. That's really kind of how I got started. But what motivated me and turned me against the mission in Iraq, you know, wasn't one one day, one happening that uh, caused that transformation. You know, I can't write in a book of that perfect moment that that woke me up. It was this constantly being beaten down by the injustices that I saw, the participation and what was going on, and uh, really just just this weight upon my soul of murdering Iraqis as a sniper that I just couldn't bear anymore. And it started out slow with, you know, small bits of protests and and writing and speaking out. And it just kind of grew eventually into civil disobedience. And, you know, I didn't even know what the words conscientious objector was until I got out of the military. It was the first time I heard it. They don't teach you in basic training. You know, you don't go through a day long course of what conscientious objector is. Um, so, you know, they certainly don't teach you the history of GI resistance. And uh, <laughs> so it was stuff that, you know, at first I felt really alone. You know, I had a few handful of friends that were speaking out on the blog and we were talking about going AWOL or whatever else, but we didn't have a lot of avenues to to go down and we didn't know that history. So we felt kind of isolated and scared just in the little amount of speaking out we were doing. But eventually, you know, coming home and meeting so many veterans and learning the history of, of the movements against the Vietnam War and everything else kind of just empowered me and encouraged me to go further and harder. And I guess that's what it took. I don't know if I answered the question perfectly well, but... Well, there's no such thing as perfect, so you answered a lot. And I, I think the second part of that question has to do with when people say that, you know, plenty of people give veterans who speak out against war a hard time, call us traitors, etc. There's a lot of issues with cognitive dissonance. So, like, what would you say to a veteran or an active duty service member or even a civilian who don't understand veterans and, and being anti-war and they feel like it's sort of the opposite of supporting the troops to speak out against war. Well, it's, uh, you know, you mentioned this before about the anti-war veteran being this oxymoron. And, you know, it's just, it's wild to me that uh, folks would think that somebody who actually is a participant in such a violent thing couldn't learn to hate it or oppose it that our personal experiences don't don't change who we are. It's kind of uh, it's kind of naive of them, I think, to assume that maybe they are the type of person that never changes, despite what kind of facts and evidence is put before them. When you go through the most transformative experience of your life, getting sent into combat, and uh, assume that you don't change in some way, I think is ridiculous. So, you know, it, it's this nationalist idea that is so horrible for for people in general you know that just reinforces exceptionalism that allows these atrocities to happen without being challenged or you know analyzed critically it's just kind of disgusting and it, i'm i'm urged to say something about what our founding fathers would have wanted but um i'll avoid <laughs> that because i think 
they were corrupt and, and horrible individuals probably as well, uh, being, being humans as they are powerful people with power, which that usually doesn't go very well. So you, you would hope that some of our ideals as Americans is the fact that we are, we do have freedom and we do have, we don't have monarchs and, that because we have a represent, representative uh, government, imperfect as it is, that we should be in a position where citizens are able to challenge the decisions of their leaders and confront them. And that should be something that is part of being American. And I think folks who have these stupid nationalist ideas talk out of one corner of their mouth saying that these are things that they value and these freedoms are important to them. And out of the other side of the mouth saying that you should blindly follow your president and do what they say because it's American and you should never question your country right or wrong. You know, I, th I think that's fucked up. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why we're in this situation. So yeah, like I'm a veteran for peace. That should be, that should be pretty obvious to people why I'm that way. They shouldn't have to think of it that hard. And why are we in a country anyways, where just wanting peace is such a radical idea. That's kind of fucked up if you think about it. I think I think people who who think I'm a traitor for questioning why we go to war and why my brothers and sisters are dying and why we're we're forcing our young people to kill other folks in other countries and to destroy their cultures and the way of life. I would question whether they're traitors or not. You know, I've read the Afghanistan papers. I've lived the life of a soldier. I know what kind of fucked up shit we're doing. And in lieu of all this evidence, they're not going to challenge the authorities to say, hey, you know, I, I don't think you should be making these decisions the way you are as my representative, the, the person that we elected. That's screwed up. Yeah, it is so strange that the default position seems to be pro-war, whether it's you just ignoring the fact these wars are happening at all or, you know, the sort of jingoistic patriotism displays that happen. You know, we just had Memorial Day. What are some strategies that you got Veterans for Peace uses to maybe try to shift the conversation around war to try to bring awareness around these issues? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think some good examples. I mean, we did it just have Memorial Day and, uh, you know, a lot of our members have been out speaking out against this nationalist idea, the fact that they use our fallen soldiers as martyrs to continue to recruit uh, kids to glorify war. To, to reinforce that as a good thing in our society. You know, they spend our taxpayer money to fly jets over, you know, over cities to disguise themselves as supporting nurses and healthcare workers. And they use, they use war machines to do that. These monuments basically are there just to, just to create these martyrs. You know, I, I remember when I was in Iraq, I was being picked up by from a sniper mission. I was I was picked up by a group of tankers and M1s, and each of our each of our snipers had to shove down into the turret between the the gunner and the the tank commander and get wedged in there to, to just ride basically three kilometers back to our our base, and we got ambushed and. Uh, you know, it was just small arms fire on these M1 tanks and the M1 stopped in the, in the middle of the road and we were all buttoned down and you hear the plink, plink, plinks off the tank, but, you know, the tankers inside are just laughing. 
you know, completely unafraid of the threat that these uh, AK-47s would pose to them until their commander yelled at them for laughing and told them to, to shoot these people before they hit like the, the, the comms or sensor suite that was exposed and that the AK-47s could actually damage because they would have to replace those. That was their chief concern. Mm -hmm. And just as this uh, argument was happening, one of the one of the fighters came out into the street with his AK-47 and started blasting one of the tanks. And uh, they let him rip with the coax and, and killed him. And the guys were laughing some more about sending the guy to, uh, to Allah and, um, you know, like checking off another martyr. And they're just kind of, they're laughing, saying some something horrible about martyrdom. And I was like, don't you think we have martyrs? Like, have you ever been to Washington, D.C. and walked around the National Mall? You know, have you ever been to your local park and your local small town and seen a statue of a soldier? And to think that we don't have martyrs? The thing is, their martyrism is based off of something spiritual and faithful, while your martyrism is based on off of capitalism. So, you know, who's more, like, pathetic at this point? That dude or you? He probably just saved his soul. You probably just lost yours. You know, I don't know about Real. what kind of scales there's going to be in our afterlife, but I wouldn't want to be you. That kind of shut everybody off, and it was a quiet ride the rest of the way to our base. But we have martyrs, and nationalism is was one of the worst things. You see the rise of, you know, these militias and these white supremacist groups. They all rally around this nationalist idea that, it's just gone too far. It's interesting to see how nationalism has been even further narrowly focused recently on specifically white nationalism and how there, there are certain types of militarization within uh, that, that are acceptable within nationalism, but then when those of us who stand opposed to those militaristic nationalistic ideas try to stand up and take up space we're seen as a, a threat could you speak to some of the challenges of organizing in such a high tension and polarized environment as we're seeing now, like the nationalistic fervor you're, you've been talking about is sort of reaching a, a peak and it's taking on some really uh, hateful tones. Can you speak to how you're addressing some of that in your approaches? Yeah, I think... Uh you know, more often than not, you have to exercise a little bit of caution. You know, I remember I remember getting out of the military in 2005 and protesting in the height of the, you know, George W. Bush era. It was fun, you know, having such this this iconic bad guy to rail against, I guess. You know, that whole administration between Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush, they're just such easy enemies. And the majority of people in this country supported the president and supported the war when I came out. You know, I certainly got my share of hate mail that I hung up on my cubicle as motivation for me. But I never felt, I never felt like my life was at risk. And now I feel like when you mobilize, we're in such a polarized situation where we have a president that's a popularist 
and only tries to uh, cultivate these hateful opinions, basically, in this, you know, he really does. He tries to cultivate hate speech and bigotry. And it seems like more and more it's, it's becoming a danger. Just the fact that when we were having our Veterans for Peace National Convention in uh, Spokane last year, miles up the road in the country, there was a white nationalist militia group that was organizing at the same time with the intention to do trainings to, to like conduct domestic terrorism in the United States. You know, for the first time in my life as a peace activist, as a anarchist and a radical, I had considered contacting the FBI. <laughs> and it just, you know, ultimately is just like, it's just this weird paradox where it's like, I would have just never even considered that before. Um, ultimately, I didn't because I assumed that there's members of the FBI, probably more so that would side with them more than they did me. But yeah, it was just, it was just a weird, I guess, dichotomy of, of organizing that, I think things are going in a in a bad direction right now. I think the the level of hate and the willingness to hurt each other as Americans we probably haven't seen maybe since the Civil War and maybe that's where we're headed with all of this, but it's it's hard, I think. You know, and generally, you know, kind of the softer question there is the challenges of just organizing I used to think that people didn't become activists and didn't organize because they they were afraid uh, of the consequences. You know, they didn't want to go to jail or, you know, they were afraid of what their friends might think if they saw them or, you know, the financial risks may be involved. But I think the real reason is because people are afraid that they're going to be ineffective. They're, they're going to waste their time, their resources, their energy, into something that ultimately is just a waste. You know, I think even the face of white supremacy and white nationalism and, and hateful rhetoric and, you know, make America great agains and all this other shit, that people would still organize in face of that fear if they thought they could be effective. And that's why we have to build a more effective peace movement and anti-war movement and climate movement and social justice movement, civil rights movement. If we can be effective, I think people will join us, but we have to be a little bit more strategic and tactical about how we do it. And, you know, right now, you know, that's, I think that's the biggest challenge in all of these movements. Yeah, especially right now, you know, where people can't, still really gather publicly or at least not in the same way so i think emily had mentioned that vfp is um, involved with some mutual aid projects during covid was that not not as much as i'd like um you know there are individual chapters uh, that are that are doing some great work and getting connected with their local mutual aid organizations and very much not underneath the Veterans for Peace banner. Usually they just organize within whatever mutual aid organization or even unlabeled organization that's that's going on in their communities. You know, one of the cool things about Veterans for Peace is that it's there's so many chapters widespread and individually they're doing autonomous stuff that's that's great. And I might never even hear about it as the executive director because most military veterans in the anti-war war movement don't really appreciate any sort of hierarchy or uh, institutional control. So there's a lot of people out there just that are going to do what they're going to do and organize with their veteran friends and not really give a shit about posting anything on Twitter or, you know, Facebook or anything else. So 
you know, there's there's some good work going on, but it's it's not really, you know, heavily bannered as Veterans for Peace. It's a good thing to to think about as far as our um, role as veterans. We're often thanked for our service. And I I have put a lot of thought into what, what that means over the years, as I think you have and a lot of other vets. And the idea of the military as service is, I think, inaccurate. For most of us, the military was a job, a really low-paying job <laughs> um, with a lot of risks, but a lot of incentives. But a lot of us did join in a spirit of wanting to be of service. So some of the, you know, the mutual aid work that is going on now within a lot of communities, I've, I know a lot of, personally, a lot of veteran friends who are involved with different aspects of that. And it dovetails with service work being, I think, an important arm of peace work. Where do you draw the connection with uh, between mutual aid work and anti-militarism or anti-war and peace work? I think every grassroots movement needs mutual aid and needs service work. I mean, it's if you're going to build a community and if you're going to build like the moral high ground and if you're going to stand as a representative of like a people's movement, I think you you have to do mutual aid. I don't think the Black Panthers would have ever been even on the map if they didn't provide services to their communities, the people that needed it. You know, that's not probably the highest form of direct action is helping your community directly and finding ways to do it. So I think it, it kind of goes hand in hand. One thing that impressed me a long time ago with Veterans for Peace is we did a march from uh, Mobile, Alabama to New Orleans months after Katrina. We marched down the Gulf Coast Highway and we ended the march in, in New Orleans. And once we got there, we met up with Common Ground Collective and met Malik, an ex-Black Panther, who was helping organize in the Ninth Ward. And uh, seeing what they set up there, starting as kind of like a free clinic and, you know, gardening to actually arming themselves and defending their communities from militias and white supremacists and even cops and National Guard at, at one point was just really impressive. And I know that the military has an incredible amount of diverse skills and, you know, every every operating base, forward operating base in the in the world is kind of like this little self-sustained community with, you know, doctors, mechanics, engineers, you know, everything under the sun to make a community operate. It really is this like communist society, you know, where sure shit, nobody there is doing it for the pay. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's just amazing what veterans can can really apply to their local communities if if they decided to organize and really, really support each other. You know, I, I wish that that could happen with Veterans for Peace more. I think with the amount of climate crisis that's coming, you know, obviously we're in the midst of a health crisis and the economic crisis that's that's just basically on the horizon. It's going to be severe. You know, communities are going to be devastated. And if we don't have some, some form of mutual aid and, and figuring out how to support our communities locally, there's going to be some mass civil unrest and suffering for those who don't. We should be preparing now. And if you don't know how to turn your local golf course into uh, a farm, you don't know where your local doctors are that live in your community, you know, you should already know that stuff, I think. You know, people should should be preparing. And I hope veterans and Veterans for Peace could always play a part in that. 
Yeah, for sure. It seems like it's going to get worse before it gets better. How, how long that lasts, the worst part, though, is an open question. So one thing that's kind of interesting thinking about is, as someone who did some anti-war work during the Bush administration, but then wanted to continue that conversation under Obama, it was interesting seeing the anti-war movement fall off under a Democratic president. But then it's also been interesting to me seeing how there still doesn't seem to be a lot of an anti-war conversation now that we have a Republican president. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and how you can kind of just keep capturing that spotlight and keeping anti-war going, including keeping liberals' attention on anti-war work, because I think that sometimes that conversation gets pushed to the wayside in favor of other conversations. Yeah, I, you know, in Iraq Veterans Against the War, we kind of saw this coming a little bit. We made a massive, you know, our intention to protest at the DNC in 2008, we gathered in Denver pretty heavy and, uh, you know, we got Rage Against the Machine to play a free concert and encourage everybody in that Coliseum to march on the Pepsi Center, which gave us a little bit of leverage to force a meeting with Barack Obama, Senator Obama at the time, and uh, really talk about it. And we, we got the we got the worst comments from liberals on the streets of Denver mad at us for protesting a day that they're all celebrating when Obama got the, the green light to be the nominee for the Democrats that day. Here we were outside the Pepsi Center raising hell, you know, talking about anti-war. And yeah, all that all that energy, everything just kind of disappeared as soon as Obama got into office. It was like, hey, Barry's got this and, you know, y'all need to chill out and give him a, give him a chance. And instead we argued about health care for like six years. And he totally ghosted out the, the wars from the American public, super invested in the drone campaign, moved a lot of stuff over to the special forces, special operations, so it could disappear and go into a black budget that nobody knew about. We relied heavily more on, on contractors. I think there's still 15,000 contractors in Afghanistan, a lot of them working directly with the CIA. So even if we pull troops out of Afghanistan, you're going to see uh, United States thumbprint still uh, influencing things in that country uh, massively and not for the better. So, you know, he really he really changed the war. And there's a thing called in, you know, combat thinking and, and military thinking called political risk. And when you design a mission, you have to consider what the political risks are of that mission. And, and that's, you know, that's not been around that long. You know, nobody used to consider about political risks before, but body bags coming home really, really damages the political risk. So if you could hide that away and hide that from the American public, then you can continue a forever war. And, uh, you know, nobody knows the wiser and nobody's really complaining because they don't see, you know, the damaging results. And you could you could disguise or excuse drones because you're saving troops lives, which you, which you are. But you're also creating terrorists a little bit at a time and you're not necessarily improving any sort of security or, you know, defense of this country. You're just, you know, just playing this. Uh, what's the game? The three card Monty with with the whole thing and yeah. um, building building our enemies. And meanwhile, robbing us of certain, you know, individual freedoms that we've had slowly and surely through you know, some secret like trickle fascist, uh, you know, policy move. And it's like, it's like shock doctrine, but in slow motion, right? So nobody sees it. It's like boiling a lobster. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, 
yeah, the wars the wars kind of went away. Uh, Trump says more than anybody that he's going to end the wars, and you know he's probably going to do that in the most irresponsible fashion possible, maybe even intentionally to create power vacuums and create additional problems in these nations where we fought. So there's an excuse to go in later, or you know just to beat every kind of hoarded's nest he can until we're attacked and gives us the he has the public support to have a more conventional war and really ramp up that military industrial complex so you know i don't i don't doubt any of this and uh yeah we're 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 not seeing the wars in the general public so how do we the second part of the question how do we keep that relevant and i think you got to you got to talk into what people really care about you know, right now we're really pushing uh, people over Pentagon and healthcare, not warfare. You know, and I think people are starting to realize that all this military money that we're putting in might not be doing individuals any any good, and that in in a, a crisis where you don't have enough ICU beds and you don't have enough ventilators and you don't have enough doctors trained and paid, um, and our you know, insurance is linked to our, our jobs and we don't have any jobs anymore. What does that mean for our society? And I think if we talk about the budget, if we talk about things that matter to people, because certainly, you know, we've tried the, the moral high ground of you shouldn't kill people. It's bad. Uh, doesn't seem to work. People really don't give a shit. You know, there's, you know, not, not while Game of Thrones is on. So, you know, people are so distracted and so invested in their personal lives and what they're doing. We're, we're so ingrained in this capitalist society where whatever free time you have, you want to spend at the bar with your friends and you're just mad that the bars are closed down, then you got to reach them in another way. So talking about what, what could be out there as far as public services and, you know, what, what the military is denying you because of the budget, I think is a good way to do it. You know, saying that all of the healthcare conversation continues to bring up for me is the fact that the military is, it incentivizes healthcare and it incentivizes money for higher education. And both of those, both of those things really, um, you know, in every other developed nation are funded by taxpayer dollars, mostly at least, if not entirely. Especially now that we're in the middle of this pandemic and people are losing their jobs and uh, losing their health care. What do you think is going to be the impact on the military and on the military industrial complex as that becomes like potentially one of the only uh, steady guaranteed jobs in this country until that that offers health care until we have Medicare for all. I'm saying until (laughs) optimistically, just optimistically. The military sees their opportunity right now with the economic downturn. They definitely, they definitely realize that they could be recruiting heavily, but the recruiting numbers are severely down right now. They've they've missed their March uh, quotas by an intense amount that they're starting to really freak out. You know, a large part is because they they used to do what's called kneecap to kneecap recruiting. They would corner kids at the mall, and they would pester them and get a phone number and then call them and get into their parents' house where they could sit down and have discussions to where, you know, I've met, I met a lot of kids who joined the military because they were afraid to say no to a recruiter. I mean, that's perpetrator. Like you make it uh, difficult. 
predatorial like uh, behavior that these recruiters have. And now that the job fairs are gone and they can't go out, you know, and show their war toys and everything else, they're having a real problem, you know, doing the meet and greets to, to get, you know, fresh recruits. But they're starting to get smarter and they're now on, on, you know, video games, they're recruiters getting paid to play Call of Duty to talk to kids online during where they're playing war games. Like, well, you like war games. You want to do it for real. You want to talk to a real soldier, you know? Um, so they're, they're finding ways as any predator would to get, to get to their marks. And, you know, they're, they're trying to reach their, these kids' parents talking about their futures and it's, it's nasty. I mean, you're going to see them as, as the unemployment lines start growing and growing and the temp jobs start growing and growing. They're going to be out there in those lines talking to people and trying to recruit them. So as, as more and more things get online, I think the anti-war movement, the counter-recruitment movement, truth and recruiting has to get online too and figure out how to, you know, how to intercept these people to, to speak truth to power, to talk about our real war experiences and combat experiences, because I, I see this dystopian future where you have a choice. You live, you live in a secure, safe area in, in the government zone, or you live outside that green zone and you're basically fighting for scraps and what mutual aid programs you could develop and living off whatever you can find and scavenge. And a lot of people are going to choose to become the cop and become the soldier and they're not going to be fighting Iraqis anymore. They're going to be fighting you and me. Well, I definitely share those concerns about, you know, the sort of dystopian future. And I think you put those into words really well. Maybe on the flip side of that, is there something you think one action people could do or something that kind of gives you hope with the work that you've done that maybe we can push this into a better timeline one way or another? (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned shock doctrine before and Naomi Klein lays out this, you know, this understandable path of how to how to create an atmosphere where people will accept change readily mm-hmm. and often run towards some some sort of amount of control in their lives or this this illusion of control. You know, you see you see so many people at home frustrated because the way you fight COVID-19 is that you stay home right? Mm-hmm. You wear, you wear a goddamn mask, right? It's so frustrating because I think most people want to take action against something and they don't know what to do. And staying home doesn't fulfill that satisfaction of taking action against something. So people want control. And, and a lot of times if they see some, something powerful and some illusion of control, they're going to run towards that. And that's how that shock doctrine kind of becomes successful. But on the flip side, also, I, I see a lot of people realizing the fissures in our systems and our institutions are are becoming more and more apparent and the gaps and faults in them are becoming obvious and the, the level of corruption to cover those cracks and make them disappear is, is becoming apparent and they're not settling for it anymore. So I think we're going to really see a new era of protest. You know, we saw a small dip in the recession in our economy and the Occupy movement kind of emerged from that. And for the first time, we started using these terms like the 1% and the economic divide and regular kind of conversations. What what comes from this next economic crisis is going to be so much more. The demands people are going to have are going to be so much greater. You know, I think back to the bubonic plague, you know, so many people were dying that lords couldn't keep serfs on their land to do the labor. And 
peasants for the first time were able to demand rights because they said, well, you want me to work your land, you got to give me something because I could go over to Bob's and work his land and he's going to give me a loaf of bread a day and you're not offering me anything. Mm-hmm. So lords finally were like, okay, we're, we'll kind of give you something. There's going to be a new kind of paradigm like that. You know, it won't be exactly right because I think labor organizing is going to be really challenging because of the lack of jobs. So, you know, but we're going to find new ways that these demands are going to become so uh, palpable. During the Great Depression, they had to create these alphabet projects just to keep fighting age youth busy doing something productive so they didn't organize and didn't rise up and we didn't have a communist revolution in this country you know we're going to see opportunities like that to really organize and really gain what what right now are temporary gains we're going to be able to make some of those permanent we're going to be able to push that further and further to the edge so you know i don't think you know we should be too dissuaded by the fact that bernie sanders didn't win the primary and the democrats i think we should still be able to seize this moment and not not ask for the compromise but but really shoot for the moon on what we want as people and what we want as public and demand for those things Definitely agree. That's kind of the goal with this podcast, actually, is trying to find ways we can do that. So Let's support rent strikes. Let's support stipend, living stipend for every American. Let's support housing every, you know, every American. Let's figure out this immigration issue and, you know, stop deporting people and stop militarizing this enforcement. Let's stop cops from killing people of color. Let's demand free health care. Let's demand free education. All these things, I think, are our reality right now. Let's use this opportunity where people can accept change and, and make those changes happen for threat of a real revolution, you know, because... Because ultimately, I want to overthrow capitalism. I want to change our governmental structure. You know, I want to get rid of the Electoral College. I want to get rid of Citizens United. You know, those are all concrete things I think that we could actually achieve right now in this moment of crisis while people are, are pissed and accepting that, you know, what is this this new normal? You hear that term all the time. People use it when we get to our new normal. Fuck that new normal. There's not going to be one. We're, we're in a period of change now, and we should be agents of that change to positive outcomes rather than accepting a new normal. Yes, the new abnormal. Yeah. <laughs> and the new change, essentially. Yeah. We're, we're kind of embracing the fact that everything as it always has been, but everything is now much more obviously in flux all the time. The, the one other thing I wanted to touch on that I almost forgot, but you reminded me of it, as we're, as we're thinking about ways for people to, to resist, the image of the, uh, you know, lockdown resistors comes to mind, these uh, armed white people storming the Michigan State Capitol, et cetera. And this idea of freedom that I've, I've been hearing a lot of people all across the political spectrum talking about how safety measures that are being enacted by our you know, local governments, our state governments specifically, as our federal government is not helping that much. As, as these are violations of our freedom you know, my personal response to that is usually that if what you're doing is oppressing somebody else, then that's not in its essence being free. That's being an oppressor. The I think more what you're talking about, um, these various acts of, you know, re- 
taking down a, a really toxic system and, and building a more sustainable and better and more humane one. That sounds to me more like acts of freedom. I'm curious to know what your thoughts around that narrative are. Yeah, well, I'm an anarchist, so I get in this argument a lot. You know, should these people have the freedom to be able to get out there and protest with their guns and hoot and holler? And of course, I think they should. But I also think that people should be responsible. And a good anarchist society to me is one that's um, self-educated enough and self-responsible enough to be able to self-govern. And it's shameful to prove that we've gotten to a point in our society and culture where we're not at that level of self-education and self-responsibility. And it's not their fault. You know, this is this is something that's been cultivated and conditioned into them because of the way our, you know, our society has been built. So, you know, we've destroyed our education system and we've made people interdependent on shit that they shouldn't have. And we're at the point where we can't self-govern. We're not a responsible enough society to do so. So there has to be bridges and steps where we can't go cold turkey or that tragic, horrendous suffering that I've mentioned before will fall upon us because if if all these you know civic institutions collapse suddenly we're in for some serious shit because you know people aren't going to be able to find food and it's you know it's going to be it's going to be anarchy in the worst way where you know that's not my utopian vision of what anarchy is so these people unfortunately they they get out there and they pretend like they're defending main street and that they're defending small businesses and they're protecting each other as communities but really most of this is just political right it's this usual like red versus blue bullshit polarization that you see that you get these people up there complaining about that and then you get liberals yelling at them that they shouldn't have the right to protest well no progressive should be saying that sort of thing. That's like a rush back towards the center. That's mm-hmm. not what we want. We don't want to inhibit our own rights and our abilities to protest later. You know, that's that's shooting yourself in the foot and uh, you're not even the one that's armed. So, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird situation. You know, I think that... You know, on the same same end, these people are are pushing these fake nationalism, and you know, the new nationalists aren't really really don't honestly give a shit about America. They hate the government just as much as any anarchist does. You know, they want to replace it with this you know white nationalistics government that's that's probably awful and fascist and worse than than Trump could even possibly imagine it to be. So yeah, I mean, I don't agree with these people, and I think they're just toxic uh, for the most part. And none of them really believe in half the shit they say. They they argue about our rights and our freedoms when they're just mad that their favorite Chick-fil-A is closed. You know, where are they when, when people are suffering, when, you know, George Floyds are getting fucking stepped on and killed by cops? They're not out there arguing about his freedom. You know, that's a bunch of hypocrisy. I mean, that's that's fucking bullshit. So if they're going to stand for freedom, they got to do it every single chance they can get, every opportunity that they can. When they see somebody's freedoms being inhibited, they should be intercepting that and, you know, bring their AR-15, but they're not. So, you know, until they can, they can really come to bat for every American, I'm not going to listen to them. But I would agree with what you said. I think that's an important point that the right to protest is something we can't allow to be taken away, even if we don't necessarily like or identify with the people that are protesting. In fact, Definitely. if I wanted to strategize to take away the right to protest, I would perhaps set up a protest 
with people yeah. that would get the people who usually care about freedom of speech angry. <laughs> right. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah. It, that is it. And that is a really good point. And yeah. I think it's, it's, um, it is important to keep in mind. I, of course, see the, the paradox of the way that they're treated as protesters versus the way that protesters um, are usually treated um, when standing up for injustice, mm-hmm. police brutality, war, things like that. There's a large difference in the way that these protesters are treated. And we can help ourselves by continuing to point to the way those protests were treated and the way those protesters were approached and treated with kid gloves. If they have those kind of rights, we can demand those rights as well as unarmed, especially, I mean, we as, as you know, the three of us as white people, you know, we have a lot more privilege around protest than people who are not white, but that's all the more reason, I guess we can be, we can be raising our voices and pointing at those disparities and keep defending those people's right to protest and also keep reminding them that what they're protesting is their, their own safety. (laughs) Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's that you couldn't have you couldn't have developed a better thing to kill Americans because of our level of exceptionalism and the unwillingness uh, to comply to anything. It's just perfect, you know. I mean, it's sad. It's it's you know going to affect vulnerable people in vulnerable communities more than it is these people that are up there probably protesting. But it's a shame. And and one of the points you made about a certain level of risk that we take while protesting, I try to bring that up as often as I can, especially around what we saw in Standing Rock. We went out there as, you know, as veterans got a lot of accolades that it was this massive turning point in, in what happened in Standing Rock. And so many people termed it as courageous to the veterans uh, to do that. And I find that kind of ridiculous because most of the folks that were out there who are veterans protesting were white men and almost universally were going to be treated better by cops because of our service history, because many of those cops were all are also veterans. Once we go to court, we're going to be treated better by the judge. If we go to jail, we're going to be treated better by the jailers. So the level of risk doesn't even compare. It just doesn't even compare. Like opening fire on that group of veterans who knew they were protected under the under the fact that they had that privilege doesn't make them more courageous than anybody who was out there standing there, especially the Native people who were defending their own land. Like they were the most vulnerable, you know, the easiest to be disappeared, and they're getting disappeared every day. So... Uh, even today, long after all of us have gone gone home. So, you know, I think any veteran that gets involved in, I think, activism and and protest needs to be aware of that fact. And if you're going to stand in front of somebody to try to protect him in a in a in a protest, you can't accept these accolades of courage and anything else. You just do what you need to do, and that's part of your active service, right? You know, if you want to serve for real, like you were saying, um, what real service is, then. Uh, it doesn't mean you get 10% off at the movie theater. You know, it means that you just try to get some of that karma back that you've lost by serving in the U.S. military and be happy about it. Well put. Yes, well put. I was just going to say, we've been chatting for a while, and I am I know you probably need to get back to your son, yeah. Garrett. But um, just, I'm, yeah, we can kind of wrap this up. 
Yeah. Did you have any other last thoughts? And oh, and uh, if you could tell us uh, and tell listeners how to uh, to find you and how to find VFP um, and uh, and all of that, that would be wonderful. We're also going to put that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to find Veterans for Peace, just go to veteransforpeace.org. I'm Sir Garrett on Twitter and usually can uh, can find me out on the streets once we're allowed out of our house again. words like that but that's okay <laughs> we could call it the what the fuck did i just learn section <laughs> what the fuck did we learn what the fuck did we learn i think that all of the points that garrett brought up around things getting worse and in many ways but then having a lot of potential to get better as being the other side of that coin were helpful for me <laughs> yeah it kind of made me think of like this is going to be super woo woo and heady but so there's this idea that you know there's different timelines out there and they all exist at once and there is some kind of new agey spiritual ideas about ways to jump timelines and get your at least yourself on a different timeline I'm like what if there was a timeline where all these people that wanted the safety joined the army or became cops but then they just kind of did their own thing and the rest of us did our own thing and made our own really great thing happen. <laughs> Just, like, on yeah. big old localized commons yeah. everywhere. I don't know. That's probably way utopian and way hippie. And it would mean people needing to get along with a lot of people, including, you know, people that maybe they don't agree with politically on everything. But, I mean, I'd be uh-huh. willing to live in a world like that, personally. It's interesting because it seems like that kind of world... That could be, like, a next phase of evolution, you know, as far as we initially evolved to, like, survive physically. And, you know, as time has gone on, our brains have evolved, but it's kind of almost been, it's been at the expense of our survival skills. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the next phase has to be finding ways to emerge and, like, having, like, our our brain capacity developed to the extent that we we grow like our compassion muscle in our brain or our ability to empathize so that we don't end up becoming so that we don't we don't continue to be self-destructive you know those of us who survive the coming um you know climate apocalypse that is yeah. 
Yeah. I don't even say us opti- optimistically. I have no idea if I'll survive a climate apocalypse. I know. I have a better yeah. chance of surviving the zombie apocalypse. At least I know how to use an M16. Yeah, that's true. You do. <laughs> the climate apocalypse can't be defended against with weapons, <laughs> which is what puts us at a disadvantage. Shoot at the flood. <laughs> Shoot at the weather systems. Hey. I mean, that's the thing. Oh, my God. With the climate, with climate change, and you know, I was an environmental studies major, so I've been on this like climate change train for a while. But um, the worst case scenarios of climate change—it's always important to remember—they don't actually involve the Earth necessarily totally dying. They just involve us. <laughs> the Earth will right, probably exactly. just shake us die. up like a bad hangover. And be like, ugh, that was exactly. weird when I had humans. God, those humans were the worst. Real bad case oh my of God, humans. God, like we're parasites. Yeah. <laughs> the other planets are like, um, really bad humans, I'm sorry. It's like, this is what you do. You give them just enough consciousness that they're smart enough to figure out how to make things convenient, but also destroy themselves in the process, and they'll, they'll just let nature run its course. Yeah. That's, that's the solution. Exactly. That's kind of dark. It is dark, but it's also, like, life is dark. I feel like we we tend to want to see life as this, like, inherently light thing that's got some darkness but like it's just as dark as it is light and you know when you think about organic life and how it develops and grows and everything you know everything is born and it dies Mm -hmm. somehow everything everything goes away eventually we have all of this you know I think this the pandemic is bringing up a lot of our fears of death and disease and sickness because we have this sort of desire to believe that like the natural state of things is healthy and you know the natural state of things is sick just as much as it is healthy (laughs) and that's it's hard to not be afraid of that but at the same time it's if we can kind of step back from the fear from it we can do more preparing for what it actually looks like and how it actually logistically uh, plays out (laughs) we can work constructively with the darkness too yeah again I, I really have gotten especially the last few months with being stuck at my house even more kind of interested in my sort of like occult left hand path spiritual witchery thing I've been doing but a big part of that is shadow work which is something I've really been drawn to recently and I feel like maybe because I see it as a mirror I mean that's one of the things you know especially if you work in the hermetic tradition as above so below as within so without everything is a fractal image of the whole so working on integrating my own shadow I sort of see that as potentially a mirror to what we're going through as a species right now which is this is our shadow and we have to confront it i mean i that's kind of how i saw the election of trump was this is america's shadow and if y'all mm-hmm. aren't willing to see yourself in trump then you aren't gonna pass this test motherfuckers no matter how many yeah. anti-racist woke memes you post on facebook you aren't gonna pass the test unless you're willing to acknowledge that that man represents you as well Mm-hmm. It represents everything exactly. that's shitty about this country. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah, we're all part 
We have to be paying attention to the ways that we're all plugged into the America computer. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all been socialized in this sort of, in this mindset that is, it's so normal to us, this rugged individualist, exceptionalist mindset. But then it's, if you go pretty much anywhere else in the world, it's, that mindset is laughable that people are just like, well, but how do you take care of each other? How do you, you know, how do you function as a society? Even if it's not based in compassion, how does your society function? And the answer is it doesn't clearly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. it's hard. People won't, won't notice how they're like, this is the best system. And it's like, how is it the best for you? It, it, there's this cognitive dissonance again, like, not being willing to acknowledge that the thing that is supposedly the best is not working out best for you. (laughs) Uh, It's so weird how I feel like other places in the rest of the world have seen just horrific things happen in their history. But then we have two, I mean, slavery, the civil war, the great depression. And it's weird that it's like everything just gets erased. And it's like, we assume nothing bad will ever happen to us in this country I think I was watching The Sopranos at the beginning of the pandemic and there's a scene where Tony's talking to his like uh, Russian ex Russian ex-girlfriend's cousin who's also from Russia and she's like that's the problem with you Americans you think nothing bad is ever going to happen to you whereas the rest of the world we Mm -hmm. think that something bad is going to happen at any moment and I totally butchered that quote but it was a really powerful and I thought very uh, prescient scene even though it was from you know early 2000s or whenever that episode was from it was like oh yes I I feel attacked (laughs) by yeah exactly but and that's real it's so real it's it's uh it's it's not just like this feeling that nothing bad is going to happen but it's almost like an indignance indignation which is the right word indignation I think it's a word Um, you're just indignant that that something bad would ever look what a bad thing (laughs) to me no (laughs) we elected a shitty president oh my god my star how did this happen it's like what the fuck planet have you been on dude (laughs) right exactly Uh, this unwillingness to pay attention to the fact that bad things not only happen but are a natural outcome of the actions that this country has taken and that we um, have seen taken on get taken on our behalf. I've been thinking about how we're sort of like the United States of Karens. Like we want to speak to the manager, demand that we have a yeah. our meal returned and replaced with something right. better. But it's like, bitch, there's no manager. <laughs> there's no manager, and not only that, but like the person who you might think is the manager is grossly incompetent. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually really knows what they're doing. Nobody is developed enough to really, um, you know, construct a solid conspiracy. Like everything just gets fucked because ever people are greedy and selfish and arrogant. It's just the natural outcome of that. What we've got right now. Yeah, I so. think conspiracy theories. I may mean, have already mentioned this in another chat we had, but. Like, they provide, and I'm not the first person who said this, but they provide, like, some comfort because they sort of give you a narrative you can hang on to or, like, the assumption that somebody's Mm -hmm. driving the bus. But 
it's almost scary right. to realize no one is really driving the bus. They're just all trying to look out for themselves and get as much as they can mm-hmm. before the bus goes off the cliff. Some people don't even realize they're on a bus. Yes. Like, they think that they're, like, on an island. Yes. But they're, yeah, I was like, no, you're on a bus. No, you're on a bus. <laughs> you keep pretending that back seat is the island, but exactly, it's just the wheel. But we're all we're all on different parts of the bus. Yeah, hitting different size bumps at different times. Mm-hmm. I think the the flip, the brighter side of that is that if nobody is really driving, then anyone who intentionally wants to can. Yes. The wheel is there is the taking. Yes. So we all have a lot more power than we think we do because nobody is born inherently specialer than anyone else. We all have the ability to step into our essential strength. Yes. And that was definitely something I took away from, from what Garrett said. And on that note, here's music from Army veteran Brittany Chantel, the last track off her most recent album, Golden Opportunity. This has been What the Folk. Thanks for listening. Sexism, racism, do they fight for rights or their system? I have what it takes, so they take my decision with the wool on my eyes that I thought was the vision. Quick to point the finger just to downplay the victim. You can hear it in the pitch, all you have to do is listen. Love and helping.